Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 72. Have you ever wondered if you would regret selling your company once a deal is done? Well, on today of the show, Bobby Martin, who sold First Research to Dun & Bradstreet for $26 million, shares with us his exit journey and some of the things he wish he would have done differently. And after going through the emotional rough patch post-sale and 10 years later, Bobby is now an angel investor in eight companies, the owner of Vertical IQ, and the author of the book Hockey Stick Principles. If you want to peer into what it's like to be on the other side of a business acquisition and merger, Bobby's episode is a must-listen to so that way you don't have to be sitting there listening to my episode or Bobby's episode or reading the book Finish Big going, what happened to me? I wish I would have known a bunch of different things so I could have planned this differently. Listen in. It's worth your time. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my episode with Bobby. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Bobby, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Ryan? Good. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on the show because as uh, we were just uh, chatting a little bit, your podcast interview that you did with John Warlow and Bull Burlingham's book sent me down this entire road with my company and this show. So I, the fact that you're on is awesome. And I think for the listeners, the ability, you know, you've got a very real story that you do a very good job explaining um, the ins and outs of it. But, you know, for our listeners, can you kind of go back to the day that you first became an entrepreneur because it was first research, the company that you started, but you know, when did you decide to become an entrepreneur and how did you jump uh, in with both feet? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting, relevant question for all entrepreneurs, but I have heard that, you know, it's like people become entrepreneurs for a few different reasons. And I think the one that's maybe overlooked a good bit is that certain people become entrepreneurs, not so much for business reasons, but for psychological reasons. (laughs) And that, um, you know, they, they sort of don't fit in with society very well. They don't fit really well into structures. And they're not also not really the retiring type who say, oh, well, I'm just going to go live in the woods. But they're just not going to fit into systems. And I worked for a bank in the 1990s, and I was a calling officer. And it became Bank of America, actually. It was Nation's Bank. But I knew, well, my original goal when I first signed up to go work there out of college was I was going to be CEO just from my driven personality. Mm -hmm. I said, that would be so cool. But as a few years went by, it became more and more more obvious that that wasn't going to happen. A lot of the things that frustrated me so much was the inability for me to do things myself when I see something that would be a great idea that I couldn't actually go make that happen. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing is just the contradictions. There were so many contradictions in the in the business that are just naturally there, it just drove me psychologically crazy. <laughs> I love it. And how my plan was actually to ride my bike across the country. And I, actually, my my now wife, we were, had been dating for 
a few years, she asked me, you know, tell me big picture what's going on or whatever with us. And I, all I talked about was wanting to ride my bike across the country and quit my job, but I never included her in the plane. So she dumped me. So it took me two years to get her back. But actually, uh, that was sort of the, that time frame around 97, 98 was the time frame. I knew I wanted to start my own business. And I was like, wow, it's so cool that that's actually an option to start my own company. And I had four or five different ideas. You know, like an op- a lot of entrepreneurs, you have way more ideas than that actual time. But I chose the industry research one, which was, and, and guess what? The reason I chose it is because I was so frustrated working at the bank because they wouldn't implement my idea of providing call prep sheets uh, to all the loan officers. And so I was like so frustrated, I started it. <laughs> so it's still a story. Well, and, and I'm assuming your wife was involved in that vision. <laughs> well, no, because she dumped me right before I started it. So, oh, so you, you started the company right after you started or right after that whole situation. Yeah, I guess she waited and make sure it was going to work out okay before she came back. To, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, man. No, we, but it was, we didn't get back together until a year or two after I started first research. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, the, the origination of the business and you, you hit on a lot of different things. The origination of the business comes out of frustration or some need. And, you know, us as entrepreneurs having a difficult time fitting into the, the framework, I think you, you hit the nail on the head because it is so psychological. And I think that's why I love your story so much because you grew a very successful company. And if you want to just, you know, before, as we kind of go through, through the, the different steps of the journey, Bobby, can you kind of explain the company and how you were growing? Because it, it ties into the book that you wrote, Hockey Six Principles, but kind of explain the business journey as you were growing and some of the major milestones. Yeah, sure. First, I'll, I'll tell you what we do, uh, what First Research does. Um, it, it, we provide, or First Research, I should say, since I sold it in 2007, provides industry profiles um, from the perspective of a sales and marketing individual. So if you're a salesperson and you're selling to multiple industries and you would love to be like a specialist and only concentrate on one particular industry, you know, when I say industry, I mean pretty specific like convenience stores or funeral homes or furniture stores, then you can use our industry profiles and read them and they're 20 pages or so. And then all of because of how we organize the information and the type of information we have, you can walk in and meet with a business owner or executive, and that person will say, wow, you sure know a lot about furniture. And that gives that particular salesperson a huge leg up. Mm-hmm. That's what we uh, did. Uh, and so that was my idea. And the way the idea came up was that I was, like I said, a calling officer. And I would go meet with all these different types of businesses. And I'll never forget, I was, we were with one of our customers and a guy was Queensboro Steel Company, Wilmington, North Carolina. And the CEO was this guy named Mark, and he was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. And I remember where we were on 4th Street in Wilmington. My boss asked Mark what made this guy named Sam Catlett such a good calling officer from BB&T Bank. And the response was, Mark said, well, because he was uh, uh, Sam was a really good banker. And he said, well, he's smart. He asked good questions. And then he paused and he said, and he knows a lot about steel. And I thought, wow, that's what I'm going to do. Because he was 25 years old. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And I went hog wild with it. And it worked so well. Then I started forming these cheat sheets on all these industries, you know, mm-hmm. 10 or 
15 of them. And I noticed the other loan officers around me wanted access to them, but we had an industry research department. And so the way you were supposed to get information was fill out a form, fax it in a week in advance, they'd mail you all this stuff. And I thought, well, that's just, that's efficient if you're trying to do an in-depth report, but if you just want to be ready to roll, Mm -hmm. that's inefficient. So I went to them and I said, you should take my little cheat sheets and put them up on the intranet. And they didn't want to do it. And it made me furious. <laughs> and so I looked for a partner. I need, knew I needed a partner. And that took me about a year. And I think I was very inefficient in that process. I was going to big companies like Dun & Bradstreet, who ended up buying us, and Frost and & Sullivan, and a bunch of the big research companies, and thinking they would partner with me. And they wouldn't partner with an individual. I know that now, but I didn't then. So I ended up finding this individual named Ingo Windsor. And he told me, he said, I'll write the first 30 industry profiles if you give me 30% of the company. That was kind of a business deal. And he says, I don't know how to sell, but I know how to do great research. And boy, did he ever. He was a phenomenal researcher. And so Ingo and I teamed up and that's how we got started in 1999. And the first year, you know, I started selling in March. And by the end of that year, 99, I'd only sold $4,000 worth of subscriptions. <laughs> the best idea ever, but it just got off to a slow start, which is, you know, one of the premises in my book. It just takes forever. So that's kind of the genesis. Well, and I think that that's a good dovetail into your, your actual business model because, you know, in the show, we're talking a lot about business value, where, where you're creating it and how you end up potentially transitioning it. But like, you know, your book, you talk about the the slow, steady figuring out of the business model for the first few years. So as you were figuring that out, I mean, $4,000, you obviously knew you were onto something to keep at it. You know, how are you trying to figure out your business model? How did you go to market and how did you price the, the services? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So I will say I did a lot of things with a lot of, I was very naive. And so I did a, a lot of things at the beginning that weren't so bright. But one thing I did do that was pretty smart was the business model I established. And that was in 1999. I don't believe there were, well, there were hardly any SaaS business models around software as a service, mm-hmm. or at least I didn't know about it. But I decided to price first research according to an annual fee. So depending on how many people you had at that institution, that would be how much your annual fee was. Now, I started out, you know, basically I did this, you know, basically projection and I showed all these banks because I figured I'd go sell to all these banks and they would just pour in. And they were, you know, it was like the typical bank would maybe pay us, say, 10 or 15,000 a year for 50 loan officers, you know, that type of mm-hmm. thing. Maybe $100, $200 per loan officer per year. So it wasn't expensive. I tried to price it like a Wall Street Journal subscription or a little bit cheaper per mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I miscalculated. I figured I could just mail the profile to the banks and they would eat it up, but I didn't position my product well. So I was out there saying, I I can sell you a bunch of research and it's going to make your bankers smarter. When really I should have been positioning first research to the banks is I could become an internal advocate for pre-call preparation. You know, I could become, and then I had to kind of sell myself to get those first subscriptions. And I think that's true of a lot of new businesses. You think you have this great product when really at the beginning you have kind of an early adopter type product which is sort of incomplete therefore you have to sell yourself as a consultant with your product a lot of times which is kind of how i hacked my way through it 
Yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Trust me, it's a great it's a great product and service. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, like- you know, how did did you, you know, as you're figuring out the software as a service business model and the, the annual subscriptions, did you have any pushback as you were repackaging how people were buying services like that? Well, it's not that they said no when I would pitch it to them. It's that they they didn't quite know how to what to do with it. And so they would not say no and not fully say yes. Most of them would show me a lot of enthusiasm. And that, that that's what I call good meeting syndrome. And I think good meeting syndrome throws <laughs> off more, you know, startup new idea entrepreneurs than anything. Because you get people don't want to really let you down and they want to see the positives of something. So what they do is they they give you this really good meeting. But then when you ask them to actually take action and sign a contract or roll it out or send you money, that's where they pause and they will pause for months. And that's what happened to me is I just had a lot of good meetings and never could close anybody. I mean, I, I finally closed like like one of my first customers was actually a CPA firm, not a bank. And they, they became my lifeblood, the CPA firms, because they could they were a little more nimble. They were a little more entrepreneurial. There was less structure. But I ran into some guy on the street in Wilmington, down on the coast of North Carolina, and he's a CPA, and he asked me what I was doing, and he asked me if I had anything on food food manufacturers or, or food distributors. And I'm like, no, but I can get you one. He fast. <laughs> we wrote that profile in no time. And he loved it, and he bought it. For like, he bought a subscription for like $500 a year, and then he ended up referring me to a trade association. And that's kind of how I got started because the banks took forever. Got it. They, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And, it, you know, with your crazy growth too, you, can you, you know, explain some of the milestones? Because you, you know, as you were figuring out the first year or two, you know, then you ended up clipping away at a very high pace. Can you kind of give us a little bit of, you know, benchmarks of how fast you were growing? Yeah. So, okay. So the first year, 1999, I did 4,000. The second year, 2000, I did 256,000 revenue. Now, keep in mind, I had no renewals. So that was real, you know, a book of business. So mm-hmm. I, I, I sold that much. Now, the smartest thing I ever did was in, I think it was January or February of 2000. I didn't have a lot of money at all, but I knew this guy named Will Brawley, who was a really good salesman at, at the bank. And he was very young, uh, very charismatic. And I really wanted him to join us. And I cut a deal with him and I had to pay him like four grand a month plus commission. And I barely, I mean, I hadn't paid myself in a year, well, almost a year. And I went ahead and took that first little bit of money and paid Will. And now we had two people selling like crazy. And so the next year in 2001, I did, I think it was $780,000 worth of business. So really what I did is, is I think I probably renewed the 250,000, so 500,000 more worth. So we were pretty rolling from there. And then of course the snowball effect after that. But, but the smartest thing I ever did, like I said, was hire Will when I didn't, when I was really, uh, I, I was not very conservative with that, but it worked out well. I'll say that. I was going to say a lot of entrepreneurs always have a, a challenge as trying to replicate themselves and being able to have someone else sell for them as well because you know they're looking to to you know put bread on the table. So that that was a that was a big decision to make. 
Yeah, I think part of the reason I was able to do that is, like I said, I was single at that time. No kids. Mm. No, my personal overhead was two thousand two hundred and fifty dollars a month. I mean, that's that's all the money I needed, and I could wait tables and make that money. You know, even back then, and I, that was my plan back of the napkin plan. But at the time, I was I was living off of um, savings. And I didn't have a lot of savings at all. I, I cashed out my stock option plan to kind of get the thing started. And I spent most of that on technology and getting things built out. And then the rest of the money I had is about 30 or 40,000 stocks. And I took one of those loans against the stocks, you know, so mm-hmm. I didn't, and I was living off of that. But, um, but anyway, I tell people like, when's the right age to start a company, you know, and you, there is no perfect age or that's a, very individual situation or question. But I think that 20 something is a fantastic time if you're not, if you don't have a lot of personal overhead, because the biggest overhead expense oftentimes is just getting the founders paid. And we just didn't have that problem. I was able to invest so much. The other thing about Vertical IQ is we got paid up front. I mean, I'm sorry, first research, Vertical IQ Mm -hmm. is my existing business that does the same thing, but we get paid up front. And so it's like if I sign a subscription for $10,000 for a year and they pay us the check for $10,000 up front, it was a wonderful financing. Well, and, that, and did you, was that premeditated too? Because, you know, when we think about, you know, John Warlow's got the value builder system and there's, you know, a lot of value building methodologies out there and it's get paid first and build a subscription model. I mean, with the, those two things that you did, you, you nailed. I mean, was it premeditated or was it out of necessity or how did you come to those? Um, how did you come to that model? I mean, I think it was both luck and skill. It was luck because I didn't do it consciously. Like I didn't read some book and go, this is clever. This is smart. This is what I'm going to do. But I think it was skill because I had been a banker and bankers, you know, it's a pretty good job for a young person because you meet with a ton of business owners. And I had a lot of financial savvy from being a banker, especially a business banker, a fair amount. So I understood very well the value of cash and you know, the whole cash is king thing. And I knew that that I figured that, that I would go broke if they didn't pay me up front. (laughs) (laughs) I I was true, but I never even considered raising capital. Right. So I was accurate in that, but I, that's kind of how I came up with that getting paid up front. So, so then, you know, when you sold Bobby, cause that was, you know, you loved being an entrepreneur. And can you kind of just walk us through, like, what was a triggering event? You know, if you loved being an entrepreneur so much and it was, you started to realize it was in your psychological nature that to enjoy it, you know, what led you to sell? Well, that's a great question. It's a very important question because what happened with my situation is it kind of snuck up on me. In other words, like I wasn't looking to sell first research. I had no desire or plans to sell the business. It was not one of my strategies per se. In fact, you know, I looked at it sort of humbly, like, which was accurate. No one would want our little business anyway. It's, it's a niche. It's not going to go to a billion. It's not even going to go to a hundred million. And it's, um, it's just a really cool business. Now, granted, we had like six, seven million revenue and growing fast. It is a fifty or hundred million dollar market, I guess. Market, I guess you could say. But, but um, what happened was, is that Dun and Bradstreet was in the process of building out profitable 
internet businesses. And they had re- they had purchased Hoover's, which is a information database for sales and marketing professionals, but primarily about companies. And then they had purchased another company that provides information about people. And so it made sense that they fell out that with industries. And I was at a trade show, actually, and a lady in business development from Hoover's. I mean, now she doesn't even do mergers and acquisitions. She was literally like partnerships, like sales. And she looked at our product and our business and said, just, you know, in three minutes at our trade show booth and told me, she goes, we should buy you. And about three weeks later, some of their, you know, mergers and acquisitions people at DMB called us to look to start conversations about possible ways to work together, you know, and quite frankly, I was very confident. I told them a few times I didn't really want to sell the business, which was true. But, uh, you know, they asked all the right questions. Well, if you did want to sell the business, what would you sell it for? You know, I, I so how did you start going, you know, cause you know, getting blindsided with the out of the blue offer, I think happens a lot. And so like, you know, how did that, you know, as you're, you know, grinding the business, growing the business, how did that, like, how did you deal with it mentally? How did you start processing what she had said or the, the conversations that were going? Did you start thinking about like, what was going through? What was the dialogue in your head? Well, that's just it is that, you know, I was, I, at the time, in 2006, I was really, uh, I would say, excited and confident. We were doing a ton of business. The business was fun and exciting and we had about 50 people. And I was loving it. So I wasn't overthinking anything. You know, I was quote unquote living the dream. Now, what happened was, is that, is that our people were talking to their people and then the president of Hoover's wanted to fly in and meet with us along with some people from DMB. And, and then I was in those meetings, you know, and we were talking about strategic ways we could partner selling each other's products, combining products. And, uh, I was looking, I was looking primarily for a sales channel. Mm-hmm. versa. But the, the president of Hoover's wanted me to drive him to the airport. He's like, you mind driving me to the airport? I'd love to catch up with you one-on-one. I knew that, I mean, I, I felt like he was probably going to ask me about something else, but that's when he said, you know, it probably makes more sense to just combine the companies. All this sounds sort of complex. And, and he explained the fact that primarily company research at DMB for Hoover's was done in Austin, Texas. People were done in Ohio, and then Raleigh could be the hub for industries, and that he could see us growing really fast if we combined and that first research would become this big amazing thing so i was like yeah oh that's interesting but i was like eh, but i don't unfortunately i don't you're right yeah but i don't really want to say. <laughs> you know right and then they asked me they said like a couple of weeks later they're very patient or they, they call me and they said the people from dnb asked what do you think the company's worth and i was like 30 million or something and they were like, well, we think it's worth, you know, 12 million. I was like, well, then let's just not mess with it. But they, to their credit, they waited about three months. Like they didn't call me at all. And I was like, I didn't care. I mean, I didn't want to sell. So I didn't care. And then they called me back and said, well, how did you do? How were your numbers? Did you actually hit those numbers? I'm like, of course we did, man. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing led to another. We ended up selling the business. 
So, you know, one thing led to it's so funny because there's so much in between there, isn't there? Like when you decided, so you get, you gave them the number for 30 million. How did you come up with that? Was that a number that you had determined when you left the bank and that was what you wanted in the bank account? Was that just like some arbitrary number? Like how did you get to that? And then why did you eventually end up agreeing to sell them? Well, no, the 30 million is arbitrary. In the sense that, I mean, obviously we benchmarked it to our revenue and benchmarked it to our profits and that kind of thing. We were a profitable business. Um, but it was, I think Ingo, Ingo's older than me. I was 30, yes, what was my age? 37 or so? Ingo was, I don't remember what Ingo was, but maybe 57. And I had his, his interest in mind too, because, you know, he time about 27% of the business or 30% or something. And Inga was very open to that number. And I was like, well, if it's good for everybody else. And of course, a lot of the employees, they had options, stock options. And so some of the executives that knew we were in talks, most people didn't, but some people had to know we were in talks. You know, they were like, yeah, I wouldn't mind a couple hundred thou, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, maybe this is, and then, I, of course, I looked at the number two, and I was like, well, I could do anything, you know, or it just opens up all kinds of things. Now, keep in mind, the whole idea was to grow. The, I thought it was going to, I thought it would be best for the business as well. And in some ways, it was best for the business, but that was also a big factor is what's best for the business type of thing. Well, and yeah, yeah. what is best for the business and your vision? Because you obviously have a I mean, did you have a vision of what you wanted first research to be? And was there like you saw some reality into that that part or that that merger? Like what what in your head, what did you want first research to be? Well, we were making the information more and more tailored, more and more helpful. We knew that the information about industries standing alone by itself was only so useful to a busy salesperson. They really want company information right next to it or like people information right next to it. And so we knew that was a, some direction that we wanted to go in in some form or fashion, right? And it was either through partnerships. It was probably through partnerships, not through build. You're not going to go build 3 million records unless... I mean, we didn't rule it out. We didn't rule anything out or even 10 million records. But a combination made the most sense to get that information together. So part of it was very strategic in that in that way, yep. you know. So then well, I, 2020, but yeah. Oh, right. No, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And, you know, it on, on paper, it makes all the partnerships seem like it's a match in heaven. So then how did you back into the 30 million? Because I mean, you got a multiple in revenue, if I'm correct, right? Versus a multiple at EBITDA. And how did you determine what it was worth? Was it a strategic number that you were trying to figure out whether they were going to build it and that's how much it would have cost? Or was it like just actually cash flow and projections? Or how did you get to that number? Well, so we ended up selling for uh, 22 and a half million plus a $4 million earn out. So is that 26 and a half? And I was very confident we could hit the earn out and would hit the earn out. And we did. And so I think that the, we definitely looked at mathematical models. I shouldn't say mathematical, you know, just financial models, you know, what our business was worth, you know, six and a half million in sales going to 10 million X operating margins, 
And then you look at benchmarks and you go, well, this company over here sold for this much. This company sold for that much. Now, what we didn't do, which was a really big decision, Ryan, was should we hire a quote unquote broker mm-hmm. and let other companies look at us as well, right? Because yep. usually when a company gets sold, they get they put together a package and get a broker and sell it. And that, that broker says, well, D&B is willing to pay that much, I bet you another company out there is willing to pay more and you drive up the price. But we decided not to do that because they were very motivated and they wanted to close by a certain date, which is pretty fast. And I didn't really want to fool with it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I didn't want to go around the country and go, hey, we're for sale. You want to buy us? And then meet with all these people and uh, go through the stress. And, and do, so I do, you regret, do you regret doing that or not doing that? No, only I, I regret not reading Bo's book. You know? <laughs> right. I think if I'd read Bo's book, Bo Burlingham's book, um, Finish Big, or fi- is it Finish Big or Finishing Big? Yeah. Finish Big, yep. Yeah, I think I would have been way better off. But I don't regret shopping it around. I don't think that would have helped us that much. We might have gotten a few million more, but nah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is this is the this is why I loved your interview with John and why I'm. You know, if we can, you know, unravel why you wish you would have read Bo's book, I think Bobby is huge because it's, you know, I mean, think about the name of the podcast. It's life after business and <laughs> knowing what you're going to be doing oh, yeah. afterwards and why. And, you know, what is it that you what tell tell us about your experience about closing and then afterwards and then why you wish you would have read Bo's book? Well, OK, I'll start with Bo's book because I think Finish Big does a great job of enabling any entrepreneur to think through the process of the end, hence the word finish. (laughs) (laughs) Now it does end differently for, even if you, if you sell, you don't always end your CEO or president founder or whatever. I mean, there are plenty of stories of successful exits that Bo talks about, but there are plenty of stories of sort of like, I probably would have done that differently had I known then what I know now. But I think that Bo's book does a good job of looking at the sale from many different perspectives. And I didn't have enough of those perspectives, like the perspective of the buyer, the perspective of the employees, the perspective of your own self-worth and like what makes you tick without you even knowing it, like your own brand or your own shtick. Shtick's probably the best word for it. <laughs> and, then the, and then from the perspective of what's next, right? Like if you sell, what happens next? Really thinking through that carefully as opposed to just selling on a whim because, you know, doing things on a whim have, had worked very well for me, right? Like that's, that's how I rolled. That's how I started first research was sort of on a whim. I'm going to do this. Screw it. Let's do it. Very Richard Branson-like. And, and frankly, a lot of my ideas at First Research were, screw it, let's do it. It worked very well. But unfortunately, a sale is a much more strategic and it's much larger ramifications with more pieces of the puzzle and more tentacles that Bo was able to bring out in that book. Right. <laughs> so, I hope that makes sense. But what were the second parts of your question? Well, no, I think that it's it's all intertwined to this because there's so much to the book. And, you know, Bobby, when you sold, you had, you know, when you say what's afterwards, you know, you're 
you were probably ingrained in your identity and the and the business and the people and what you were trying to accomplish. I mean, explain that that emotional process of when you sold and what happened to your company afterwards. Yeah, there's well, first of all, big picture, there are three things that both points out that can happen when you sell your business, generally speaking. Number two, your business. Number one, your business can but remain a company. You know, meaning it has its own profit and loss statements, it has its own divisions. I mean, it has its own departments, has its own employees that do turnkey, take care of that product. That's outcome number one. Number two, you can become a division. And a division, of course, is when you had some shared services like, well, no sense in having your own accounting finance department. We have, that's just operational. We'll take care of that. Oh, okay. When this, you know, you have marketing, we have marketing. Why would you hire all these people for marketing? We'll just do the marketing for you in conjunction with what we're doing. Or we have salespeople too. And we'll just have our salespeople say, you know, would you like fries with that? And so that's kind of a division. You sort of pick and choose throughout the organization on what stays with the product versus what goes to the larger uh, headquarters or whatever. Mm -hmm. The last option is you can become a product. And when you become a product, you really just have a product manager. Now, granted, you have someone who's take people who take care of the product and write software for the code, code, do the industry research. But the company is more has now become a product where there is there are no salespeople, marketing people, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the three things that could happen to you when you sell a business. And you know, I didn't see that really coming up. I, I was always under the impression we we're going to remain a company through the the general comments that were made all, all along. But it turns out we were a better fit probably as a product. And so what happened to our company was we became a product. And over time, most employees were either laid off or left the company, you know. And so the, the company, the company per se is, was no more. It was just just a product. So how did that, I mean, how did you deal with that when you're watching these people kind of flounder around like fish out of water at the at that uh, uh, DMB. I mean, did you feel responsible for? Did you have regrets on how it went, or what would you have done differently? Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was brutal, man. I mean, I completely miscalculated how hard it would be. I mean, I was visiting with psychologists weekly. Uh, I was under so much stress. I thought I had like it's going to have a heart attack, so I ended up like having a stress test with at the doctor. They put all these cords all over you make you get on a treadmill to see if you're healthy i mean like is he gonna die you know type of thing and um but i had physical pain Uh, i wasn't sleeping well and you know everybody was very stressed out and every a lot of people were turning to me for answers and as much as i wanted to give them answers it became clear and clear that i knew a little more than them but i didn't know the answer like so I would do the best I could with information within reason, but I just didn't have the answer. So, I mean, I'll never forget it. They were going to roll out this sales thing where how do we sell first research type of thing. And I thought I was like one of the people who are really creating this go to market thing, you know, sort of a communication, if you will, across the franchise on how first research would be sold. And, and I was like, I got this. I got it under control. Don't worry. And then I found out that it already went out. They're like, I was like, I'm working on it now with executives and 
we had this, and then a few of the salespeople were together like, Bobby, it's already gone out. It's in our inbox. And I'm like, well, I didn't even get it. <laughs> so it's brutal, man. Like, it's so, really tough. So and it's what how you, it goes, man. Well, what, what did you think that, what, what was the biggest, I mean, maybe you haven't even articulated it, um, but like, you know, where did you struggle the most? Was it the lack of control or the lack yeah. of, you know, creativity that you were able to, like, what was it that you actually struggled with or loyalty? Or, you know, do you know exactly what couple of things you think it was? Well, it's a, it's a great question. I, th- I struggle with all, all, all things like that. So I've, I've, I struggle with the lack of control. I remember like we had a business plan that under the merger we were supposed to follow and that involved hiring a bunch of people. But when I hired a few people soon after the merger, I got chastised by HR because I wasn't supposed to hire anybody without going through this process. And then finally, I wasn't allowed to hire anybody. <laughs> but the point was is that I didn't have any control over anything really within reason. Like I just didn't. And um, and that's just I didn't see that coming. You know what I mean? I just didn't calculate for it. And certainly, the the other big thing is that they they keep score differently. And so, like first research would quote unquote keep score a certain way. So, like a salesperson at first research would be measured on this his or her success over an annual basis. But then at a large company, they're usually measured success over a weekly basis or a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. And so the measurements were much, more, much shorter. Right. And so I was like, if I missed a week, like let's say that first research didn't hit its target for a week. I didn't think I never thought anything of that. I always measured the business per year. Mm-hmm. I committed to saying or if we committed to ourselves that we would sell $3 million in new subscriptions in a year or something, then, then in a year we would sell $3 million. But what we didn't commit to is $3 million divided by 52. Well, I didn't know anything about that. Mm-hmm. Because our sales fluctuate week to week too much. And so that was absolutely brutal as I tried to, I was like, oh, how are we going to generate, you know, another 100000 this week? We can't. And then they would say, you've got to. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is new. This is different. I'm not used to this. So, how, so, so how did you go like about like dealing with it mentally? Like, well, as you were starting to realize this, and it's coming to you know your your awareness. I mean, were you? How did you deal with it as as you were working for DMB? And like, how did you like? Did what did you find out was missing, and how did you end up like overcoming it? Well, I was, I had to work there until june 30th 2018 like a year a year and two months that's the only way i could really overcome it was just not work there anymore right like because it was so different than what i was used to and so different than what i was comfortable with now keep in mind that's a good company like dmb they didn't do anything wrong like Mm -hmm. they were great like they're really good businessmen and women they were they know what they're doing like i don't want to imply that they were bad and i was good all I'm saying is I was beat. I was, I, um, I'm only telling you how I felt. Right. right. So it, their strategy was probably sound and good, but, um, but the only way to overcome it was to not work there anymore. I, I would have liked to have left earlier, but, and I actually, I sort of became a salesperson. You know, I kind of got phased out of that role as president, which was okay. I mean, I didn't have bitterness over that. 
So I was kind of selling first research and portions of the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I was going to Portland and Seattle, which was cool. I kind of like that. So, you know, what what would you have done differently now that you know, you know, hindsight 2020? I mean, what would you have done differently throughout the entire process? Well, first of all, that's a that's another man. You ask great questions, man. Um, I think that honestly, man, I think that if I was going to sell to D and B now that I know what I know now, that I would do it. I would be much savvier in knowing what to expect, and I would go, okay, this is what we can expect. My job is to help the company I sold to um, execute to the best of their ability. Uh, to the best of my ability so that they can be as successful as possible. Don't get me wrong. I, w- I did not execute, but I just feel like if I had known then, I could have taken all the emotion out of it and gone, that's what we signed up for. And, you know, I gave I gave a lot of the employees a fair amount of money, even more than the options, but I would probably do even more now. Like, no, and then I would probably say, all right, that's not enough options. You need You, you deserve more cash. So I would take more money out of my pocket and give it to the people who had to do a career change. Now, they all landed on two feet. One of the greatest things that came of it was that a bunch of new businesses started of ex and first research employees, really successful ones. Like there's this one company you should interview called Schedule Fly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fascinating guys if you can pin them down. But they are really off the curve in a good way. And it's employee scheduling, but th- but three of three key people from first research started um, schedule fly. I started vertical IQ, which is really jamming. It's kind of industry profiles for uh, primarily for bankers and CPAs. And then Carolyn and Ingo, they started local market monitor, which is jamming. And uh, and the list goes on and on. So I, did any obviously the, all of your employees are <laughs> pretty pretty solid uh, individuals. Did any of them hold hold it against you, or did they just like mentally and financially and career wise all land on their feet without much of a hiccup? Uh, I would say they didn't land without a hiccup, but I don't think they ha- they held it against me. No, there was a couple of them who were rumbling, who were angry, but most people, I mean, almost all of them were totally cool about it tell you the truth i mean they didn't blame me at all and even though i said i kind of screwed up they still didn't blame me they were like man you did what i would have done you know they were great and um no hard feelings uh yeah there's another other company's boardroom insiders that sprung out to lee denby that's a fantastic business and um all of them would make great interviews you could get their perspectives on this merger too same same and then I think that, that, that it's a good tie into like what, you know, what you're doing now. And so, bef- you know, cause you can tell the, the passion, enthusiasm, what you've got now. And I know there's been some time that's lapsed, but so let's, let's maybe back up one sec, sec before we could talk about all these amazing businesses that you're involved in. And, it, and, you know, Bobby, when you left DMB and had to recalibrate yourself in the six inches between your ears and understand who you are, how did you, what are the, what are the, different resources or things that helped you go through that process and how did you come out to where you are today? Yeah. You know, um, the resources piece, I think that, I think counseling is really important, kind of a, 
combination of psychological counseling coupled with career counseling. I ended up finding a guy who I really liked a lot, but it took me three or four years after I'd sold. So I wish I had met this guy, John, earlier, because it really is a process to think through sort of what's next. You know, this company was sold 10 years ago, which is crazy. And I think I also learned a good bit about the last 10 years. Like, what would I have done differently from the last 10 years? And it was interesting because I ended up writing the Hockey Stick Principles, which was an absolutely blast project. I loved it. And so I learned a ton. It was like an MBA times 10. Primarily the interviews I did with successful founders was really interesting. I learned a ton. But I became an angel investor, which is a formula. I mean, a lot of people do that. But I've really enjoyed the way I've gone about it, which is I've invested in eight companies and um, in a very like early stage laid back way. So I don't have a formal, so much formality. And that's made it really fun. And quite frankly, there are a lot of them are successful life growth businesses where they're like, you know, millions in revenue, but they're not going to get to a hundred million yet. They have good operating margins type of businesses mm-hmm. and niches. And that's been a really cool journey that I've loved because now I'm basically buddies with eight different founders of eight different types of business, which is so <laughs> And then vertical IQ, of course, is sort of the second version of first research, which has been a blast. We have about, we have 16 employees and uh, that's, it's a really fun business. It's doing really well. So, so no I, as you're looking at these businesses, Bobby, you know, how are you approaching your investments or your emotional tie and relationships to these businesses and your new business differently because of what you went through with first research? Well, yeah, I'd see, I, I kind of, I kind of emphasize to them to really think through what it is they're trying to build. Like, what is this you're, what is this you're really do, trying to do? Um, about half of them are looking for the fast growth and the exit, right? They're looking for the sellout. However, it seems to be more of an explosive, like let's scream on the scene, let's gather up some professional money and let's get some really smart people and build something and then maybe sell it. I felt like first research was more of a cult culture. You know, we were like just sort of family. Mm-hmm. All these businesses are kind of family like that. You know what I mean? Like not all of them, but a lot of them have that five. But like people didn't really quit at first research. We didn't have a lot of turnover. Like, I don't think anybody ever quit there <laughs> just because we were having fun and just sort of it's like summer camp kind of thing. But it wasn't lazy either. You know, we, but we worked 40 hours a week. Right. Like mm-hmm. we were 40 hour work week people. So my advice to the founders I work with is like, I don't know, you sure you want to sign up for the 70 hour, kill yourself and then <laughs> sell out and then have only 20 percent of your company when you sell out and, <laughs> and then make a, make two million. Then it gets taxed down to like a million. Five. Like, what is that? Like, that doesn't seem like a great deal to me. I would rather I'd rather have a business that earns three or four or five hundred thousand dollars a year. And it's really just cool. And I work 40 hours a week, right? And so I'm always encouraging people to make their business whatever they want them to. Too many founders of new idea, tech startups, that kind of thing, think the formula is build it fast, grow it fast, pour capital into it, and then sell it. When really, a lot of these businesses should just be, how do I create a business that lasts 
for a very long time. It has 10 million in revenue, 25% operating margins, 20% growth with a phenomenal culture. Shouldn't that be the goal? Like, and that's kind of what we're doing with first research. We could grow, I mean, I'm sorry, vertical IQ. We could grow vertical IQ much faster, but we're just, just trying to enjoy the ride. You know? Have you have you read a book, uh, book Small Giants? Oh yes, yes. That's Bo's other book. book. Yep. Yes, yeah. That's that's like to the T. Um, what he is talking about in that book about building a small giant where you don't have to grow a scale and you know take on VC money and all this other stuff. It's about building a healthy, sustainable business with good with good culture. And and Bobby is is crazy. I I, I asked him this question, and I said, "Can you finish big?" and become a small giant and it because it's about i don't know if you've got any advice from all the, the different companies you're working with or the people you've interviewed but can you finish big and keep the company that carries on without you while having this kick-ass family culture business you know how do you balance that emotions culture financial return all at the same time and i don't know if you've found a way to do it or if it's uh always a struggle well yeah it's a great question i think well, yeah, I do think you can do it for sure. I think certain situations make that happen more naturally. For example, if you get venture capital money and that VC money is professional money, your chances are much lower because they really need to sell and they need it to look like other businesses. They don't want you to do things that are a little off the curve just because you feel like it and it's your culture. They're looking for growth. And they're looking for an exit. So if you take VC, it's hard to do, um, but you can do it, but it's more difficult. I also think that the way to get that done is if you're going to sell in the future, that try to sell over a three to five year period to the perfect partner and really understand who you're selling to, what their intentions for your business are in terms of integration and culture change and that kind of thing, because it's absolutely doable. But, you know, I just think that the other thing, too, is is you want to put yourself in a position to have whatever you want in terms of a culture by having a business model that's profitable, right? So if you have good margins in your business and you can earn 10 to 20 percent operating margins out of your business every year, and you can still grow 20 to 30% a year, then you have the right business model. You know, they have that SaaS businesses have that rule of 40, mm-hmm. like the growth rate plus the operating margin should be 40. So if you can hit the 40 rule, then you can do it, you know, but those I, are a couple of comments about that. No, no, I think it's, I think it's good advice because it, it you know, it's take, it takes time to get your head wrapped around what it is that you want. <laughs> Because it takes a lot of, because if you don't know what's out there, then it's hard to figure out what you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think thinking through that carefully and slowly is is the way to go. And, you know, build build the company the way you want it to be treated. Like, if build it the way you want it to make it. If you want it to be some, like, for example, like little things within the culture. Like, if you want people to be able to work from home whenever they want, fine, do that. If you want to have a cool office too, then you can do that. You can do anything you want so long you make it work within a reason. I mean, some of the guys I know, they've started businesses that are so good that they have unbelievable profit margins, like, and they have no cost in their business with millions in revenue, and they don't work. That's how talented they are. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, 
They created it that way. So everything they did, they went about it that way. And the biggest thing they are good at is saying no. So the ability to say no is oftentimes one big yes, right? And so you, you just set up the right business model and you can do anything. So, well, and I th- no, I think it's important too, because I mean, you build it, I mean, you just define what it is, you know, finishing big while creating a small giant because you've built something that's sustainable without you and you've built something that you like. And, you know, even that working from home and I, you know, there's this other lady who um, I've talked to where she had all these amazing things in her culture that were important to her, but she didn't choose the right partner. You know, because it, so if you sell to someone that doesn't allow your employees to work from home and, and destroys your culture, then you're going to be unhappy, even though you financially crushed it, then don't do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. It, the, the partner, I tell you, I, I also think in my book, The Hockey Stick Principles, I'm like, you know, avoid 50-50 partnerships. And it's a simple formula, own 51% or more of your company. You know, otherwise you're, you pretty much work for the other founders you know, or other founder. That's mm-hmm. not a bad thing, but it's a lot better if you have a particular goal in mind to build it the way you want to build it within reason. Now, you have to, a big part of building it the way you want to build it is keeping everybody's interests in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> you know. Well, Bobby, as, as we're wrapping up here, I mean, I don't know if there's any, you know, you, you had a lot of great pieces of, of, of wisdom throughout the episode. Is there anything you want to highlight or leave our listeners with? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing, I hope people take away from my, uh, chat with you, Ryan, is that, you know, selling out is over, it's overrated. So if you sell out and you sell your company, that's oftentimes overrated because having lots of money is overrated. And usually when you sell, it's a financial transaction normally. And having lots of money is mo money, mo problems. And like that's, that's for real. Like notorious B.I.G. was right. About <laughs> just yeah. a bunch of headaches. But and if you have a great business, you still are able to earn a really good profit and provide a ton of jobs or whatever. But owning, so having a lot of money and selling out is overrated. But having your own company with your own culture, running it the way you want to run it, it's like great to employees and has good margins and is really great to its, its customers. That's underrated, right? Like, and so that's kind of how I look at it. So I hope, I hope people pick, picked up that from my uh, chat with you. Well, I, I enjoyed having you on the show so much. If the if the uh, listeners want to get in touch with you or check out um, where you're at online, what would be the best place? Uh, Bobby Martin dot me, and it's B O B B Y M A R T I N dot me. Um, it's also hockeystickprinciples.com, but I just go to Bobby Martin dot me, and you can sign up for my blog. You can get in touch with me there, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Bobby. Yeah, I loved it. Hey, Ryan, nice to meet you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for sticking around. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bobby. I am so happy he was on the show. It was his episode with John Warlow's Built to Sell Radio that got me and my dad really going because we've really had an understanding of what we went through. And between his episode and the Finish Big book by Bo Burlingham, it really changed my trajectory of where I was going this podcast and the services we have with our firm. So my three takeaways for my interview with Bobby are the first one being knowing why you became an entrepreneur is crucial to your ultimate happiness. Because if being an entrepreneur is psychologically ingrained into who we are, the business becomes a reflection 
of our personality and all the things that are important to us. So knowing why you became an entrepreneur will help you understand why your business is important to you and the relationship that you have with the business and how you're getting that happiness out of that vehicle that is known as your business. The second one is knowing what's important to you in an exit. So if the first one is knowing why you're an entrepreneur, what's important to you, the second one is knowing what is important to you in an exit other than the numbers. So what Bobby said is after the money, there's certain things that are just important to you, whether it's changing lives, having people work from home, you know, providing to the community, whatever it might be that will help you figure out how to be happy once that deal is closed. So you're not sitting there working for someone else or have sold the professional money and not really understanding what the motives were is crucial to making sure that you can navigate and choose that perfect partner to transition the business onto. The third one is knowing what to expect. So if you can do any justice to yourself is understanding how to dive into resources to get the different perspectives that Bobby was talking about. So read the book, Finish Big and Small Giants by Bo Burlingham because they're amazing and they will provide insights that even this podcast or other books might not provide because of how well-rounded Bo handles the Finish Big interviews and the, the context of the book. Interview and sit down with individuals or entrepreneurs that have sold or that are involved in the sale so that way you can understand their perspectives in real life. And then the last one is listen to podcasts like this. Hopefully it's providing you with some value to see these other perspectives. So with that being said, if you can rate me on iTunes, go to Life After Business, shoot me a rating. That'd be super helpful. And tune into next week where we've got great tax advice on how to defer capital gains on the state and federal level using a 1031 exchange. So we dive into how the 1031 can be part of your transition plan to make the financials a little bit more viable to get you out of your company with more money and sooner if that's what you want. So until next week.